Hey everyone and welcome to the podcast. This episode is proudly brought to you by, well, anybody. We are currently looking for a sponsor for the Road to Success podcast. So if you, an organization or business you know or are involved with might be interested in finding out some more information about sponsoring the Road to Success podcast, then please contact me online either via mattylovell.com or you can find me on Facebook or Instagram too. We can start to go over how things might work and have you or your business sponsoring the Road to Success podcast. Until then, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Matty Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with neuroscience educator Nathan Wallace. Wonderful. Nathan Wallace, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, pleased to do it, mate. Especially in such a crazy time at the moment. I mean, when people do listen to this, this is sort of, you know, we're on March 24th at the moment. The New Zealand's just been announced as a, you know, I guess being shut down. It's pretty full on time, yeah. isn't it? What, midnight tomorrow, was it? I think so, yep. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. level four, and then um, it's pretty surreal, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I've got to say I'm looking forward to it a little bit. Is that bad? Are you allowed to be a little bit happy about it? Is there some people that are going, woohoo, four weeks off work and I get paid anyway, so I'm sweet. There is yeah, a lot of people in that situation. It doesn't yeah. underplay the trauma of it for some, but I don't think it's a compulsory to have to be miserable about it, is it? Yeah, I think I actually heard the other day, I saw that I think Beethoven and Mozart both wrote some of their most famous pieces when they were in isolation from the plague. So well, there you go. There might be some positives from it. Yeah. No pressure, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look, I really appreciate your time. And look, if I'm completely honest, I hadn't heard of you in, until my daughter was born. And um, right. that's and, pretty normal, bro. Most people haven't heard of me until they have a baby. <laughs> and it was funny because um, you know we were in hospital for about three days after that. And once you you know have a child and you're in hospital, it's like the midwives rotate through your ward as opposed to nurses. And right. so you get a new midwife every four hours. And every midwife I had kept, or well, we had, kept saying, you know, have you heard of Nathan Wallace? Have you heard oh, of Nathan okay. Wallace? That's have you heard excellent. of Nathan Wallace? Yeah. And one lady even said, um, I remember she was so enthusiastic. She came back, she said, have you heard of Nathan Wallace? I said, yes, yes, I have. She said, he's amazing. He's going to be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I hope yeah. she's right. And I, I can't, can't say I'm very close to fulfilling that yet, but I like her vision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, look, if um, like you said, lots of people who've got children know you, but you know, if people are listening who maybe haven't heard of you, can you give mm-hmm. us a bit of a Cliff Notes version of, of who you are and, and what you've done and I guess what you do now? Yeah. Um, I've had careers that have always involved children in varying forms. Like I was a primary school teacher and then a... I only did that for a little bit, worked out of like the naughty kids. Really, most of my practical career was being a child therapist, working with kids around trauma. So that introduces you to the brain literature. But at the start, there was bugger all of that around. And then the 1990s hit, and because of brain scans and MRI scans, suddenly we could see inside the brain while it was alive, and that just opened the floodgates. So then I got a reputation as a neuroscience trainer. So it was a whole organisation I worked for. I ended up being the lead trainer. It's hard to give a linear version of where my career went because it was just, you know, and then I become a lecturer at the university and lectured there for 15 years and that really exposed... On, on what? On human development. So that's within that topic. And that's... I'd always had an understanding of human development. It was only when I had a job that I had to become aware of all the literature. And when I become aware of all the literature and not just pieces of it when you're a practitioner, you could see all these patterns that were like really, really obvious. I'm like, why didn't anyone tell me this? <laughs> and so I think... At the end of the day, I've just got a, an ability to be able to take complex things and go, oh, it just means this. And people go, click, and get it straight away. And so I think I've just made a career out of that, taking the knowledge that I've got from being an early childhood teacher, a primary school teacher, a child therapist, university lecturer, neuroscience trainer, and going, well, what does that mean for you as a parent? I suppose in my head it's like, 
my kids are grown up now, but yeah, if I knew someone had all this information in their head, I don't want all the fluff around it. Just cut to the chase. I think because I'm from down south, we're into cut to the chase. You know, skip the bullshit. Just tell me what does that mean. Yeah, and I think that's important, particularly around when you start talking about topics like neuroscience and human development and brain yeah. development. Look, there's most people that's not an area of even comfort talking about. It. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's because we get scared off by the big words because people start talking about your frontal cortex and your cerebellum and, and you know your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex and you're like what? But it's like a language that just hides what are very simple principles, actually. And I think that's what people like. They like the fact that it's research-based and evidence-based and not just another person giving their opinion, but it's factual and short and punchy. You know, I know that we're at lots with dads, and so I know they want sound bites. They want the information all around it, but they need a sound bite to go away to. So when I say things like, we can predict how much money your child's going to be earning when they're 32 based on nothing else other than the number of words spoken to them per day by their main caregiver between the ages of zero and one then that, you know, especially in men's minds, that's nice and solid. Oh, right, the more I talk to the baby in the first year of life, the brainier they're going to be. All right, start talking to the baby. It's nice and straightforward. We can spend an hour unpacking why that is and how it works in the brain. But essentially it's taking it back to that key message. Yeah, and probably most people aren't entirely interested in the science behind it. They want to know, they yeah. trust you and go, right, well, if yeah, yeah, yeah. you're telling me that, I know that you've done the done the work and yep. that's important to me. And, and you're right, people can take it away. And, and I think you do have a real, you know, from the, I've seen you speak and, and watched a lot of your videos and you do have a very clear ability of just simplifying really complicated things, which is, you know, maybe one of the reasons led to your popularity as well. Yeah, I think so. I think it's also that I try and present in a, not in a non-judgmental way. I'm trying to present in a way that says, here you go, here's the information. You decide what to do with it. You're a competent person. You are the expert on your child. I don't don't present in a way that says you should and you should. You know, I just have to say those facts and put it out there. And so I think people like that. They like that's a concept of koha in Māori, that a koha isn't given to you, it's laid on the ground in front of you. And the person has the autonomy or the tinoranga teratanga, the choice about whether they want to pick that up or not. So I present in that style. I don't go, you should, you should, you should. Yep. I go, here you go, do you know this? Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. And that fits with people too. It stops their defences going up, so it keeps them more open to learning. Yeah, it's very smart. And I think, um, you know, that also allows lots of different people to take lots of different things out of one session. You, know, right. you might do one thing and someone relates or respond to a certain element. That was certainly what happened with me. You know, okay. my wife and I went, came along and listened to you speak and no, I wrote notes for everything, but, you know, we wrote notes and we went away at the end and we compared notes and we had entirely different notes you know, but, um, <laughs> yeah. in the same seminar. So so yeah. how do you sort of spend your time now? You know, you sort of, you talked about, you know, you've had obviously a large amount of experience in human development and sort of yep. tertiary educations. You've obviously got a passion for children and, and you've sort of narrowed it into this idea where you all this sort of concept where you seem to be helping predominantly younger people and, and parents, you know, help develop their children the best they can. Yeah, yeah. I sort of, in the last year or so, I've been split between parents and professionals. So for 15 years, I've been training professionals, doing full day trainings and a six hours worth of um, introduction to neuroscience. And in six hours, and the way that I teach, you can, you know, get through like a university degree. You know, I had to sit in lots of lectures that went on for hours and to go sit at the end of it and go, I only really learned that one thing. Or I'd listen to all this complexity for an hour and then think, ah, oh, it sounds like he just means da da da, but it can't be that simple. Or it wouldn't have gone on. It took me years to work out. Oh, no, it really is that simple. They're just saying it that 
complexly. So in six hours, we can get through a lot of information. And what um, are you teaching professionals? Um, just the same stuff, but more in depth, because they do want the science behind it. They do want it anchored into the research. They want it anchored into their frame of reference already. You know, if they're early childhood teachers, they want to know how, how does that relate to Tafadaki? How does that relate to, you know, all teachers want to know how does it relate to Piaget's stages of college? How does it relate to Maslow's hierarchy of needs? They And they want it integrated into their school curriculum too. So with professionals, you're just not going over the top so much. You do have to go into a few little boring bits and give them more detail. Yep. Yeah. Then the basic feedback I got from everybody after doing that for, you know, 15 years was that, oh, yeah, it's all right for us to know all that stuff, but the parents don't know it and they move in the opposite direction. So the teachers are going, oh, play-based, and the parents are going, oh, that's a waste of time, get my kid ready for school. So they're like, what's the point of us knowing if the parents don't know? So I've really moved to doing parent education. I've been doing both. But I'm really trying to cut down on doing those professional development days because they just take up so much time mm -hmm. and focus much more on parenting and changing the community's perception. You know, we've got some, do some things really, really well in New Zealand, but we do some things really, really shit. Um, we don't value early childhood enough. We think it's shitty nappies and blowing noses and put the dumb people there as the teachers because, you know, we weren't bright enough to be a primary school teacher. Because I was a primary school teacher first and then an early childhood teacher. I'd have heaps of parents say to me, to be really nice, they'd go, when I was an early childhood teacher, oh, you're so good at this, Nathan. You could be a primary school teacher because they think it's a promotion to be a primary school teacher. They'd be amazed to find out I was a primary school teacher and then become an early childhood teacher because they see that as a demotion. And in pay, in New Zealand, it is a demotion. In social status, it's a demotion. You get the younger the child is, the less professional development you get, the less no contact time you get, the less pay you get, the less holidays you get. Conditions are just worse all the way down. So that puts us in a polar opposite to what the actual research says, where this first thousand days is what actually forms most of your outcomes for the rest of your life. That should be the period that we invest the most in as taxpayers, not the least. Right now, it's the lowest should be the highest. In Scandinavian countries, and you know, it's the highest. So they you know, spend most of their taxes in the first year of your life because they pay mum 80% of her salary to stay at home. And that's going to do more to fix the teenage suicide rate, lower levels of anxiety and depression, lower imprisonment, all the things that people want. It's not actually about doing punitive things or interventions at that time. A lot of it relates to the first thousand days and whether you bloody grow a brain or not, whether you grow a frontal cortex or not. Yeah, and I, you know, Again, you've done exactly what you said, and you've simplified a pretty complex subject into. And I asked when you know one of the things I took away with when after seeing you was you know spend as much time as you can with your children, especially in the first year. Yeah, and I think one of the the things you said was, "Hey, look, if you had fifty thousand dollars and you could use that for any stage of your child's development, most people would put it towards a high school education, yeah. put them into a private school, and realistically, you're far better off to take that money and use it to subsidise uh, the primary caregiver's wage in the first twelve months of life and yep. have them spend all their time with the young person. That's right. Yeah. So staying at home in the first twelve months of life will do more to lift your kids' qualifications at thirty-two than going to the flashiest private secondary school because your brain is not designed in adolescence to work out its capabilities it's designed to do that in the first thousand days but yeah if the culture doesn't tell you that and you don't know that and we don't value the role of an at-home parent and we say you know I'm just a mum or as soon as a woman's having a baby one of the first questions we're asking her is when are you going back to work tells us that all the emphasis is placed we just don't have a culture that supports just how sacred and important that early years stuff is. Yeah, you're totally right. And it is an interesting conundrum and it's a paradigm that I don't think it's just our country that sees no. the world that way. It's a you can divide it because yeah, England's like us and Australia's like us. But then the countries that get, um, 
or the top of all the international research in terms of produce the brainiest kids. It's called the PISA scores. I mean, they're not the be all and end all, but they tend to be the international measure of, and the countries that come out on top, Finland always comes out on top, Scandinavian countries all out at the top. They've got a cluster of things mm -hmm. that leads to that. And to me, the, the, the very two things are that they have a parent start at home in at least the first year of life. Sometimes it's longer, depending on different Scandinavian countries. The other thing is they value play until the child's seven. None of this early cognitive instruction, none of this, oh, I need to get my four-year-old knowing the alphabet and their colours and numbers because that's going to make them brainy because they're more research-informed. They realise that's bullshit. It does not make your baby brainy. Yeah. No one can tell for the rest of their life after eight how early they learnt that stuff. It's not about how early you learn. It's about the order that you learn in. And, yeah, I think those countries value early childhood so they have a parent home in the first year and they value early childhood so they value play. Play is really the secret evolutionary trick that, you know, after all the years of research and stuff that I've done, if you want to know just one quick trick to make your kid as resilient as possible and as intelligent as possible, then I would say leave them playing until they're seven and try not to do any academic instruction before then. Under seven, it's all about how intelligent your child feels. It's not about how much of the alphabet they can parrot back. Wow, I think I've, I've heard you talk before and I think you talked about... It was Carl Jung, and you said that. Ah, love um, Carl Jung. Look, his books behind you there. Really. <laughs> um, you know, you, you said about. Um, you know, I think they dissected Einstein's brain, and they they thought that he was going to have a. You know, because of his intelligence, yep. could have a certain part that was going to be large. And in fact, it was just his. It was his right side. His creative side was just. Yeah, yeah. It was they expected his frontal cortex, the home of higher intelligence, was going to be amazing, and it looked, at first glance, like it was just the same as everybody else's. Now, years afterwards, we can see differences actually, but then it was like, oh, it looks exactly the same. What stood out was his parietal lobe, which is often called the artist lobe because it's used for visualisation and things, um, that was about, I think, 30% larger than the average person's. That was fascinating because that means Einstein wasn't a genius because he had a higher IQ than us. Einstein was a genius because he was able to look at science and maths with the brain of an artist and see patterns that are outside our sphere. Interesting, isn't and it? He was so creative. Interesting, too, when, you, when Einstein was asked, why do you think you're the man that discovered relativity? Because... We could have gone another 100 years and not discovered relativity, so it wasn't just like it was going to happen the next person anyway. It was definitely an Einstein thing. And he said, yeah, I've thought about that a lot, and he says that the thing I put it down to is that I was a cognitively slow child, so I didn't learn those cognitive things until much longer, so I was left to play for much longer, and that developed my imagination and brain. And he also contributed to growing up playing the violin as, a, as continuing that. Wow. But yeah, I think that's fascinating. That, that tells fascinating. us lots about balanced education. We think if you're going to get a maths genius in New Zealand, you should get rid of all the waste of time subjects and just start focus on STEM, science, yeah. technology, engineering, yeah, yeah. and maths. That actually just grows half of their brain, so you're not likely. And we don't produce world-class mathematicians because I think we isolate them to half a brain far too early. They need creativity. They need music. They need, all, you know... You yeah. need a whole brain to be a genius, I think. Yeah, that's fascinating. Hey, one of the things you, you spoke about before, and, and you mentioned it in um, in your talk that I saw as well, and I've, I've got a question regarding it. It was about, yep. you know, we learned more about the brain, and I think it was the 90s that we had yep. in, in every other decade put together. Yeah, 300 years. We had the equivalent of 300 years' worth of information in one decade. So it had taken 300 years before that to acquire that much knowledge. And can you explain that? Why? Um, it's because of 
Basically brain scans. Brain scans in simple language are magic machines that see inside your head while you're still alive. Our parents did not have that. Everything they knew about brains was based on dead people's brains. It was based on autopsy. So that means our parents of hundreds of years, we've known a lot since Da Vinci's time about the anatomy of the brain and shape and size of little bits. But we're always looking at a dead brain. Got no idea how that operates in lifetime, except for what you can observe from the outside, until the 1990s. Brain scans, MRI scans, um, PET scans. Now we can see inside the brain and start to see what it's doing in lifetime. So it just massively expanded our understanding of how humans work. So suddenly, bang, 300 years worth of information in one decade. And it wasn't like it peaked in the 1990s. They just called it, I think it was Bush that called it the decade of the brain, just reflecting that 300 years worth. And they thought it was a peak, but actually we learned more in the following 10 years. So we're in the age of the brain right now. We're just learning more stuff all the time because of technology. Yeah, it's amazing. And one of the things that you talked about that we that we did learn in that was this idea of neuroplasticity. Oh, yeah. Now, if, I right, right, yes, if I said that right, yeah. I was nervous about that. Yeah. Can you explain that concept, please? It's really the fact that your brain can heal itself. That's what neuroplasticity means. Plasticity is supposed to come from the word plastic. Well, it's actually originally come from the word plasticine because it's supposed to be pliable. Plastic's not really pliable. It's often hard as. But it gives the idea that your brain is pliable. I think it's just the original researchers didn't pick up well on the word neuroplasticity. So you're struggling with neuroplasticity plasticity so <laughs> yeah. it just got shortened to that but it means the brain's ability to heal something else if you have a stroke and you lose language on the left frontal cortex you lose language can you ever 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 learn to speak again yes you can you know stroke victims who lose language learn to speak again that's neuroplasticity if you had no neuroplasticity then once the language center was dead you'd never learn to talk again so in the last 10 years especially, we've learned that, oh, we've got way more neuroplasticity than people thought. We used to think you only had it in response to a thing like a stroke. And then they worked out, the London cab driver study is one that lots of people know about, and they measured the hippocampus or the memory of these cab drivers before they learned the knowledge, this bloody 50,000 streets, whatever. And that study basically showed, oh, you don't have to wait until you've got a stroke. Actually, if you work the brain in certain conditions and work it quite hard, it brings about neuroplasticity. And now we've got to the point where we realise, oh, no, you don't even have to work the brain that hard, actually. Um, your brain's always adapting to the environment. Is that like rewiring? It is like rewiring. Yeah, yeah, it is. You rewire another part up for language. Um, it's the same as in your body, I suppose, if you had a stroke and you were not using your right arm. Or I suppose you might compare when people go blind, their other senses get stronger. It's, mm -hmm. That's a type of neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what are some ways? I mean, I find that quite interesting. I mean, firstly, it's kind of like psychology and positive psychology. Psychology was always a study of of sort of what's wrong and how to get people from, you know, depression you know, back yes. to zero, back to normal yeah. again. And this idea of Marty Salomon came along with this idea of positive psychology and said, hey, well, yeah. how can we actually get people from zero to 10? And so yeah, I that. love that, eh? We shouldn't have low expectations of just, oh, you're not suicidal? Sweet, let's move on. <laughs> Perfect. What Next. about being yeah. happy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so how yeah. can we, you know, and that's what they did in positive psychology was sort of use some of the, the same sort of tools and tactics and, and use them to get people from, you know, to, to get better and happier and yes. wellness and, and quality of life and all that yep. kind of things. And, you know, are there ways when we talk about the idea of neuroplasticity yep. to take, if someone hasn't had a stroke and they're not just trying to get back their, you know, movement or speech. To make them happier. Yeah, what can we do? Yeah, there is. It's, um, it's just knowing those principles. One of the things I think is um, understand that your brain is voice activated and your brain believes the shit that comes out of your mouth. So language yourself positively. It, 
I'm not saying believe it. You can have the lowest self-esteem in the world. We're not coming from a feeling place. We're coming from a behavior place. What is your behavior? Is Were well, the words coming out of your mouth saying, oh, I'm, I'm stupid and I'm useless at making friends and nobody likes me? Because you're just creating a reality where you're stupid, you don't get any friends and nobody likes you. You don't realize how powerful your language is. I'm saying you could feel that underneath. What should come out of your mouth is I'm getting better at making friends and I'm learning to love myself more every day. And I find the more I love myself, the more other people like me. You don't have to believe it. Say it. Just say it out loud. Just realize your brain is voice activated and the voice it listens to is yours. So fake that shit. You know, like, and then it's going to take about three months, really. It's going to take, about, all? Three it's going to take about 90 layers of myelin. It's very hard to put time on it. Yes, it depends yes, how often, but roundabout. You know, we know that it's going to take 90 to 100 layers of myelin on a pathway before that pathway feels normal. You can just tie your shoelaces without thinking about it now because it's fully myelinated. It's got that 100 layers. When you first learned to tie your shoelaces, you had to really focus your attention and, you know, make a bunny's ear out of that one. And so it's the same with any behavior. When you're first going, I love myself, and I love the people around, it feels fake because it's got no myelin on it. But once you've done that consistently for three months, then yeah, your brain actually starts to believe it. So just rewire, reprogram your brain. But you'd have to have that control to make yourself do it for a start. It sounds quite simple to say, yes. stop languaging yourself negatively. But actually, that's a big challenge for some people who have yeah. habits constantly of going, oh, no, I'm shit at that. A lot of people don't say directly, I'm shit at that. I notice a lot of my friends will say things like, oh, well, the one thing I am good at is I have to challenge them and go, you're good at like a hundred things. So realistically, you've achieved this, 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 this. You know, But saying things like, oh, well, the one thing I am good at yep. actually says I'm pretty useless overall, but I have some value with this little thing. And if you're going to language yourself that way and not value yourself that way, the rest of the world won't value yourself yep, that way. 100% right. And it's interesting to know there's science behind it as well because you know, I believe in – affirmations I, I do my affirmations each morning and, mm -hmm. and I think that there's a lot of things that people don't as you said don't realize they are telling themselves yes. um, that they are bad at or they can't do it and a really good example is when you hear people say things like I'm not a morning person um, yeah. I'm bad at remembering people's names yeah um, I always lose my my keys my wallet like my yeah, stepdad yeah. is a is a like he's just yeah I'm, I can never find my wallet and my keys you know it's yes, like, yes exactly it's like you're programming your brain to forget where you put them that's right know? And yeah, I don't, yeah. I I didn't know that before you told me, but you know, yeah. I, I believe in that sort of stuff. And um, oh, that's true. Yeah. You can very much see it. When you go, I can't read maps, it's like your brain goes, Oh, all oh, right, can we not read maps? All right, well, we'll shut that off. Um, we won't, we don't need to do that because we can't do that. Apparently, yeah, it's yeah, very, very much um, so. Yeah, the morning person's a great one. Like most people will say, I'm not a morning, you know, yeah. the majority will say, oh, I'm not a morning person. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm terrible with people's names is another classic one. Everyone yeah, says yeah, that. Yeah. And of course, you, you know. And so when I, I ran a small session on affirmations, and one of the things I encouraged people to say was instead of that, each time you try and say that, just say remembering names is my superpower. And and, yeah. and do that every time you, you go catch yourself trying to say that and see what happens. Yeah, 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 because that's interesting. I tried to turn it the other way, but I suppose it wasn't. I was going, I'm really good at remembering people's faces. Because I am, I find I remember faces, 300 people in a crowd, and if I establish eye contact with someone a year later, I sort of know that I've seen their face before, I don't know where or who, but mm -hmm. I have really good facial recognition. So instead of going, oh, but I'm shit at remembering names and just call everyone bro, <laughs> just rather than putting it negatively, I'd just gone, I'm really good at remembering faces. But that's not actually addressing... Yeah. The issue of not being able to remember names. So I like what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, remembering names is my superpower. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's so easy. That sounds so simple, but most of the really good answers are really simple. It's incredible how much that reprograms your brain. Yeah. And I think the advice you've just shared there is probably applicable to 
anyone regardless of what they're doing in their life. You know, whether you're yep. a parent, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a leader, whether you're a, you can find something that you, you know, yep. are currently doing that's either affecting your ability to perform well or you mm. can find something that you want to be doing better and you could start telling yourself that yeah. every day. Yeah, and if you can't find those things, because not everyone is in touch and stuff with themselves and I sort of know what that is and if we're overwhelmed that there's too much, I'd do this thing, I would just use as your affirmation, I am worthy. Because really I've been a counsellor for lots of years and stuff and when you boil it down to all different people's issues and stuff, it's often an underlying, a lot of people don't feel worthy. And that can be childhood issues and whole lots of stuff. But just the mirror work, staring at yourself in the mirror and saying 10 times and meaningfully as you look into your own eyes, I am worthy. I am worthy. I am worthy. And just 10 times say it as meaningful as you can looking into your eyes. And your sense of self-worth, just, you know, you do that for 10 times in front of the mirror each morning. And honestly, three months later, you'll be a different person because, you know, everybody is worthy. So if they allow that to come to the surface, everyone's a whole lot happier. Sounds woo-woo, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. And that's why you've got to have a level of consciousness to take it on because it just sounds like, oh, you know, for fuck's sake. I mean, I come from down south and they'll be, oh, eerie, fairy shit, like poofed, you know, but the shit works. So why make it complicated? Why do... 15 years of psychotherapy yeah. of actually uh, looking and staring at yourself in the mirror meaningfully and saying you are worthy does Great. it you know why shouldn't it be easy I yeah. find I have found the answers are easy like your brain's voice activated the answers are easy yeah yeah I love that it's, it's fascinating one of the other things that you you also illustrated again very simply which stuck with me was that you talked about having four parts of the brain yep. and their sort of roles and our ability to, to stay alive, to perform and to, to think. Could you maybe explain those a bit, please? Yeah, basically the brain grows from the bottom to the top. That's how it's evolved. That's how it's, uh, you know, the number four at the top is the most recently evolved and number one was the first to have evolved. And you can see it across the animal kingdom, like brain number one is your survival brain. Everyone's brain number one is survival because survival is the prime director. You know, brain number four for humans, that's where all our really higher intelligence stuff is. What I say to parents is brains one, two and three your dog's got those as well. So brain number four is the brain you've got, the dog hasn't got. So reading, writing, language, you know, all of that advanced cognition is up there. But that's going to be the last to develop because we might value literacy and numeracy, but you can actually live a long, long time without literacy and numeracy. Whereas the survival brain, number one, you're not going to live very long without a beating heart. So survival is brain number one. Um, then brain number two is movement. Just to do the quick version of it, don't need to make it more complicated than it needs to be. So brain number one, survival, brain number two is movement. Allows you to be a moving creature. If that is all you've got, you're a reptile. Reptiles tend to have brain one and two and that's it. They don't have brain number three, most of them, because it's the emotional brain. And so you don't see these reptiles as being very emotional. But, you know, so your pet lizard's got survival and movement, but your pet dog is a mammal, so he's got survival, movement, and number three, emotion. So when you get home from work, you can tell the dog's really pleased you're home. When you get home, you can't tell if the lizard's pleased. It just stares at you. The dog's wagging its tail because the dog's got an emotional brain. The dog loves you. The lizard's never going to love you because love's <laughs> in that limbic emotional brain, right? And then brain number four is, like I say, all this flesh stuff that makes us a human being, everything that gets measured at school. It's not just everything that makes you brainy. It's everything that keeps you out of jail and makes you a nice person because it's empathy, the ability to control your emotions, metacognition to understand yourself. All of that's up in this wonderful brain number four. The thing is, brain number four doesn't just roll out because Einstein's your father. Half of it is about um, your parents and genealogy and your genes. They are important, but they make up overall 50% of the equation. 50% um, of the equation is that environmental, specifically that data in the first 
thousand days of your life, that's what decides how much frontal cortex comes online. So it means that you've got two identical twins and they're both Einstein's kids, but one gets raised in a typical normal home, doesn't have to be particularly great, just in a normal home. He, you know, then that he activates all that intelligence and he becomes a genius. His identical twin brother who went to an abusive home and got locked in the cupboard all day, even though he was fed and changed, there was no health issues there, but just the quality of data he would gather being by himself in a dark cupboard for the first thousand days of life. I mean, actually, the first thousand days starts at conception, so you couldn't do that, but, you know, mm -hmm. from birth until two and a half, I'd expect Einstein's kid to come out of that cupboard, the adopted one, um, quite thick and not very good at maths or science because your frontal cortex doesn't just come online because you've got the genetic information. You spend the first thousand days seeing whether you need it or not. And if you spend the first thousand days in a once or warrior type vibe, mm -hmm. then you are told that you need your survival brain, not your higher intelligence. So there's a whole lot of other underscourge of society out there actually that you know are filling the prisons and stuff a lot of them had the potential to be brilliant it just wasn't activated in the first thousand days and then it costs us a lot as a taxpayer for the rest of their person's life because they tend to remain a once were warriors person which is all about you know negative outcomes and harm to the community the side note on that it's kind of the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff isn't it you yeah, know, it is. investing money into facilities like detention centres or whatever it is rather than investing the same amount of money into, you know... Preventing the problem from happening in the first place and, yeah. like, and letting them actualise their potential. The good news is what we said about neuroplasticity, it's actually never too late for them to realise their potential. The, the human brain always has neuroplasticity. If you've got a beating heart, it's got neuroplasticity. But it'd be idealistic to think that most people get access to that change. If you're, you know, the vast majority of children that have lived once were warriors until they're three are going to live once were warriors for the rest of their life. It's just yeah. the reality. It's sad, I guess, a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it is. But I suppose that's what we learned in the 1990s. A brain yeah. number four is relationship dependent. So, yeah, it's just re and realizing that the brain grows bottom to top. So, understanding those four brains is really empowering because then you know if you want to get a real healthy brain number four, it's not about skipping brains one, two, and three and putting your 12 month old into a reading program. You know how they have those things on TV, flashcards and stuff? Mm -hmm. That builds on the assumption that the earlier my child acts seven, the cleverer they are. Whereas actually, if you've got a one-year-old acting seven, you just skipped the very important one, two, three, four, five, six that forms brains one, two, and three. And you're going to have a kid that gets quite, learns the alphabet and colours and numbers early, but that advantage will disappear by the time they're eight and you won't be able to tell. And then that kid's likely to be quite emotionally incompetent, not very resilient, because you didn't build brains one, two, and three. It is like building a house. No builder ever has gone, let's just get a really flash roof and suspend <laughs> it by crane and then try and build walls and floors underneath. That's what you're doing, though, when you go straight to higher cognition. That's that thing about play. You know, play is in brain number three. That's moving into centre stage from two to between seven and eight. The, the brain number four comes online. So really, between two and seven, we should be immersed in a totally um, social, emotional, child-led, free-play curriculum. That's what will make your child the most intelligent. That's what the research tells us will give your child the lowest statistical possibility of having anxiety or depression as a teenager. And that the earlier we decide to interrupt that and shorten that period so we can get them ready for the next brain number four, the worse their outcomes are. I don't think you get that unless you understand how the brain's structured. Yeah. And, you know, with regards to, you know, one, two, and three, and four, are they, when we talk about if we moved into an adult, are they all operating at once? 
Um, not, no. I mean, they do in a way because Might your be brain's complicated. Yeah. There's yeah. always a little bit yeah. going on, but um, you can think of brain one and brain four basically as being on a set of scales. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, old-fashioned scales, when yeah. one side's up, the other side's down, that means if up means active. If your brain stems up and active, then you can't really access your higher intelligence very well. You know, if someone's chasing you with a butcher's knife or a saber-toothed tiger's chasing you and trying to eat you, are you going to be able to do a calculus equation while you're running? <laughs> no, because you, uh, you won't even know what your middle name is while you're running, actually, because <laughs> your middle name and calculus are all things in that frontal cortex brain number four and it doesn't just stay online in fact the survival's in charge because it's a prime director so you only get brain number four when your survival brain allows it when it pulls down and goes oh no I feel safe and it drops down it allows your frontal cortex to come online it's not Brain number four that's in charge, though. It's very clearly brain number one. It's the eldest, being there the longest, survival's the prime yeah. director. And that's yeah. that fight, flight, freeze, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's an extreme, gunshot goes off behind you and yeah. you freeze, then you you don't even know what your name is at that moment, you know, yeah, for a yeah. few seconds. Um, yeah, And the same thing, if you really, really relax the brainstem, like if you see when your kids really love their teacher... They don't just like their teacher, they love their teacher, you know, and they um, and they go on and on and on about and everything that you do. They're like, oh, my teacher doesn't do that. You know, Mr. Smith does this and Mr. Smith does that. When your kid um, really loves their teacher, their academic grade soar. And it's that same thing. It's because they feel so safe that their brainstem is so calm. They can really start to access their full intelligence and really learn at a high speed. I mean, teaching and learning is definitely a relationship-based a thing that happens in the brain. The stronger that relationship, the more intelligent the child will be. It's not the harder the work, the more they're pushed, the you know, the higher the qualification of the teacher. That's not over and over again what drives a child's intelligence. Clearly what drives a child's intelligence is the quality of relationship. Yeah, I think that probably goes past, I mean, this is an assumption, but probably goes past school as well. I think mm-hmm. the, the relationships in general probably drive the quality of people's lives. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, meaningful relationships tend to trump most things. Yep, I do. Often that's one of the things I say in my talk is when we're talking about the brain, I said if this was a real estate seminar, I'd tell you the three most important things about real estate are location, location, location. And a brain development seminar, the three most important things about reaching the full potential of the human brain are relationship, relationship, relationship. It is really a relationship tool, your brain. Yeah. Does that stop? Like, you know, does the, and we talked about neuroplasticity, but does the brain's ability to develop stop at a certain age or do people continue to, you know, as as having healthy relationships throughout life um, positively affect the development of a human being? Yes, absolutely. So your brain does continue to develop for the rest of your life. Yeah, because you can see it in a cognitive decline way, which is often what people do. So if I stick up 60 grocery items on the board, let you look at it for one minute and then take it down and say, okay, everyone write down how many they can remember, you will find that the 25-year-olds in the room remember the most. That's at the height of your ability to recall. And then after 25, that how number you can remember goes down, down, down. Now, if you choose to look at that and go, oh, look, my brain's declining. Whereas from a human development point of view, it's um your brain changes it doesn't decline it gives up the recall of information to start looking at patterns between the stuff that you've recalled it's almost like the brain goes the first 25 years is gathering data so we don't need to do anything with it so we're just really good at memorizing so you can memorize most of the 60 shopping lists and you get to a point where you go there's no point just memorizing whole lots of random facts and doing nothing with them at some stage your brain's got to has gathered enough data and needs to move into looking for patterns that's called wisdom so we start forgetting the car keys and, and the grocery items because we, your brain has made room for wisdom it's really how we've evolved for thousands of years is that there was young people to run around and find the car keys and do all the remembering. You as the leader, as the komatua or the, the elder, had to have wisdom. 
So, yeah, I don't think your brain declines. I think it changes its function. And certainly the more you exercise, the more mobility. It's very connected to mobility. It's why yoga has such an impact on ageing. Yeah, some ageing is clearly, you know, we are ageing as a thing, but a lot of it is a choice. You know, if you shut down from relationships, what do they say? Isolation. <laughs> Probably not the best time to be talking about that, but isolation is the root cause of mental illness. Isolation is the mother of mental illness. We're not meant to be alone, are No, we're as human beings, are interdependent creatures. We have evolved that way and our psychology shuts down. And you can see it even in old people that have a dog get way less depressed than old people that don't because just the process of talking throughout the day, okay, what are you going to have for dinner, Rover? You know, I'll get out of the bloody way. But just talking releases peptides and endorphins and stuff which keeps you happier, makes you live longer. So it is very much about, yeah, social connection. Yeah, if we, if we stay on that sort of topic for a second, you know, one of the things that as you get older, I think your fears change a little bit and, you know, yeah. and I, I think now a little bit, you know, one thing that does scare me as I get older would be, you know, the d- decline of functional ability, cognitive decline of, of, my, of my brain. And, yeah. you know, are there things that, you know, we've talked about isolation, but are there things that people either should do or shouldn't do yeah. to, I guess, increase the health of the brain? Right, right, yeah. There is, clearly we talk about cats, not actual cats, but as an anagram. The four things that lower your neuroplasticity that we can see very clearly in the research are caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, and sugar. So it doesn't mean you should just ban those things. It just means having an awareness and being aware because it's a mixed bag. You know, caffeine, for instance, there's, there's a whole lot of research that shows how positive caffeine is, um, some research that shows how negative it is. So I think people have to move beyond just looking at the substance and go, how does that substance interact with my particular genome? You know, because everyone's got their own genes. So in the old days, we didn't know that. We just went on body weight. So we just told everybody, the first cup of coffee is good for you, for everybody, stimulates their digestion. Second cup of coffee is neutral. Third cup of coffee is bad. Your heart rate starts to go up. It's associated with heart disease. That is true of the majority of the population. Now we can map genomes. Some people have high metabolism genes for coffee. And actually for those people, the 10th cup of coffee a day is not raising their heart rate. So they seem to be getting benefits and no negatives up to 10 cups of coffee a day, which is as much as they've measured. It just seems they have an unlimited ability. So you can't just say coffee's bad because if you're that person that if you have a coffee after lunch, you can't sleep all night, then probably four or five cups of coffee is bad. Whereas if you're the person that can drink 10 cups of coffee a day and has no problem going to sleep at night and have a cup of coffee before you go to bed, then it's probably not bad as to how it interacts with your genome. But in a simple way, avoiding caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, and sugar. And sugar would be the worst one of them. The reality is that's the that's your brain has no receptors for refined sugar. So, you know, people are quite surprised to find out alcohol and marijuana after the age of 18 are not really harmful to the brain. Alcohol can be harmful up to 21. But that means to the let's say over 21, to the adult brain, alcohol and marijuana are largely harmless. The adult brain can take up to eight units of alcohol an hour and not show any damage. That's a lot of alcohol. Alcohol's a poison. Why does that happen? Basically happens because our ancestors kept doing it for thousands of years. You know, um, our early ancestors, a lot of them would have died of alcohol poisoning and stuff because we didn't have the receptors in our brain to protect us from it. But luckily, for thousands of years, they just kept drinking anyway and persevered through. So now we all have these receptors in our brain for alcohol. So if you have five units, of, I'm just making up the numbers, right? But if you have five units of alcohol, all five units doesn't go through your heart stream, or through your bloodstream and through your heart now because the receptors absorb four of the units and only one unit's left to go through. That's why it's largely harmless because we've had it for thousands of years, we've developed these protectors. So you've got receptors for caffeine. So we've been having that for thousands of years. Alcohol, been having that for thousands of years. Marijuana, been having that for thousands of years. You do not have receptors for refined sugar because we've been doing that for 300 years. So it's actually true that most people are going to die of sugar. 
the leading cause of death is heart disease. And the leading cause of heart disease is refined sugar. And a, from a neuroscience point of view, it's because you don't have these receptors. It means our ancestors, if they we keep eating sugar at this rate, in two or 3,000 years, your kids won't get heart disease and stuff. They'll have receptors for refined sugar, and it'll be as harmless as alcohol and marijuana is now to the adult brain. But right now, it's a lethal killer. So if you're going to choose one of those, <laughs> yeah. caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, or sugar to give up, I'd give up sugar first. Oh, and I suppose tobacco. Tobacco is a complete waste of time. Don't get anything from it. You yeah. know. So yeah. I mean, well, we're just talking about the energy. brain, I guess. Obviously, there's other physiological effects of tobacco yeah. as far as lungs and bits and pieces. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If you're just talking about the brain, then yeah. sugar is the one that I think yeah. is doing. Yeah, I mean, sugar is pretty unanimous. It's not really good for yeah. any, any part yeah. of you. Yeah, but that's interesting. Cats, coffee, alcohol, tobacco. Because you could just say alcohol's bad for you, but that's the thing when you're, when you're with research, that doesn't necessarily, the research shows the first glass of alcohol's good for you. Mm. Um, people who don't drink alcohol at all don't live as long as people who have one glass. But it's when you have the second glass that it starts to yeah. decline. So actually there is one glass of alcohol seems to be a perfect amount that is better than none. Because yeah. we can't just say alcohol there. Yes. Mm. Yeah. People will get probably get into more trouble with what they do when they've had alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Not the actual alcohol, yeah, but yeah, yeah. the consequences of <laughs> yeah of your actions. Yeah. yeah, and so like those are things you should avoid. Is there are there anything that we can do to positively affect the health and development of our brain um, that we haven't maybe already covered? Yeah, I drink lots of water mm -hmm. and worry about the quality of your water. We've had that same thing we said before that if people aren't depressed, we just want to get them up to not suicidal. And people tend to just have really low quality water as long as it's not poisonous. Try and have high quality water. It's 90% of your brain's water, 70% of your body. So that's a way of maintaining health. Stay hydrated. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people are not hydrated. Um, so yeah, drink more water is a good way to look after your brain. We talked about the positive affirmation stuff. Just talk about your brain positively. And there's clear link between physical fitness and your brain fitness. Like they are completely linked, you know. May suck going to the gym. I've been going to the gym for the last two years and I'm not a natural gym person. It's a, I grew up playing no sports. I got last in the cross country. I um, was the brainy kid, not the physical kid. So it's quite a challenge for me to go into my uncomfortable zone. It's like if you were thick at school and now you're going to university, you're going to have lots of anxiety about it. I felt like that going to the gym. I'm just not good at this shit. But the research is so overwhelmingly, you know, it's connected to your brain and your overall well-being that I've just persevered through. And, like, you know, now it feels quite natural. Yeah, really, it was the first three months that feel totally unnatural until you get all those layers of myelin on and get a sense of belonging and stuff. But Yeah. yeah. Fitness. And maybe telling yourself that you're not a gym person is, doesn't help either. That's right. That's right. You know? Yeah. 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 And I, like, I don't think um, I sort of work in the you know fitness industry. Part of my job is that. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I think people often complicate exercise. I like to bring it back to movement. You know, it's like yep. it doesn't have to, you don't have to go and lift massive weights. You know, yep. and, I, and you know it can be yoga. You know, yeah. hill walking, cycling, skateboarding, like yep. golf. You know, whatever yep. it is. It's like I, yeah. I always think that like if you the best form of exercise anyone can do is the exercise they'll do. You you know, like if yeah. my granddad is never going to go to the gym, but he'll yeah. play 36 holes of golf in a day and just froth on it. You know, it's yeah, like yeah, that's the yeah. best thing. He shouldn't join a gym. He no. should play more golf. Yeah. Because you know, he'll do it. Yep. You know, and I think mm. that um, movement is the should be the focus. Yes. Um, obviously, there's more benefits, you know, like resistance training and, and cardio stuff, but mm. anything people will do is um, is beneficial. And it's, it's great to know it's um, beneficial for the brain. It depends as well. what your goals are, too, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I'm, I sound much more shallow than you because really I'm going there to get guns. <laughs> I want to have muscles. I want um, people to look and go, woo, he's got muscles. You know, it's a very vain thing, but that's what motivates me. Whatever your so motivator much. is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know from the literature that yoga is the thing that really 
if you want to live a long time, um, you want to have the lowest possible stress, if you want the cheat sheet and the fastest, quickest possible way that the research tells us for you to attain all of the stuff, yoga is probably the number one on the list. Really? Because it just does so many things. Yeah. yeah. It calms the human stress response system, but it also keeps all of your mobility going. So you might have the heart to live to 112, but if your mobility's gone by 60 and you've got a very limited range, then you ain't going to get there anyway. But the mobility, it keeps your body young, keeps your brain young. Yeah, so, yeah. it's amazing. And also yoga, so I guess, you know, you're crossing over a lot and both parts of your brain are activated. Yep. And um, mm-hmm. that's interesting. They don't really know why. It's just the yeah. most effective thing for rewiring the vagus nerve or the your human stress response system. Mm-hmm. So in plain language, that means when a man's got a domestic violence conviction and he's sent to an anger management group, the research says he would do way better to go to 10 sessions of yoga than he would to go to 10 sessions of anger management because 10 sessions are talking about it. There's no research base at all to show that that makes any difference. In fact, the research, but I used to work in that area, so I know the research, the only people that works for is the people that goes, oh, I've got an anger problem. Is there a course I can go to somewhere? And they want to do it. They make movement. Everybody sent by court doesn't make any movement. The courts, from a research point of view, would be better off sending those angry men to yoga for 10 sessions. Even if they're the whole time thinking, oh, this is a load of shit, bloody poofters. Just the process of doing yoga for 10 sessions does help to change the vagus nerve and does calm the, the stress response system. And you know, there's a clear indicative evidence that that would lower their chances of reoffending more than anger management. So it's a powerful, powerful thing, yoga, because it, it changes the actual physiobiology of your whole body. Do you do it? Do you do yoga? Yeah, but not as much as I want to. It's in the, you know, now that we're in lockdown, I, I will start doing it. My daughter is right into yoga. She sends me all the links. And like other people, I have a my knowledge of who I should be. I'm never quite achieving that. I'm always busy. I'm doing 80% of it. And certainly yoga is in that top 20%. And yeah. I go, oh, I want my life to not be running so much and what if I was just living the life I wanted to live then that would definitely involve daily yoga now it involves probably yoga once or twice a week and it's just my own version at home and in yeah. front of the telly but yeah oh you've got four weeks now mate so. yeah that's right <laughs> and I also want to write a book and I've given up on learning the guitar you should write a book I think it'd be interesting yeah I'm going to it's just yeah I've got ADHD I don't really like sitting at a computer and writing you're a ghost writer you yeah, could, yeah, um, yeah, I am starting to use a ghostwriter. You could um, yeah. you just put a, a dictator on you and just start yarning and then just send the ghostwriter your tapes. And That's exactly what we've done. Oh, have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, he's just come along to the talks and dictated them and got them transcribed and then he'll start putting them into the structure and stuff and then I just put my, you know, I've still got to write it, but yes. then you've just got someone else yeah, doing, doing that. Of, yeah, 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 fantastic. And that's sort of, you know, obviously that's a strength of his and not a strength of yours and yep. um, so trying to align those. Absolutely. And, and if we talk about, I want to talk about strength a little bit because obviously everyone is a different person and everyone you know, then has a different brain. Yeah. Are there ways that we can understand what our brain, you know, what we are maybe aligned to do naturally or what the strengths are of our brain and sort of, you know, things like um, the Myers-Briggs things. There's a value in doing those and then, you know, finding out that our brain has a particular orientation to be good at this type of thing and then we should try and align our strengths or our work with doing that. Is there research around that? (laughs) There is, but it's a bit loosey-goosey, you know, like Myers-Briggs comes from the work of Carl Jung and it's been so influential across the whole world. But if you're looking from a purely positivistic scientific method, no, it's all bullshit. It makes no difference. What I think is that 
uh, whether it's Maya Briggs, whatever it is, just you having a conversation about understanding your temperament type and your motivations, whether you're then putting it into EN, TNF, or whether you're using horoscopes and saying it's because you're a Sagittarius, I don't think it matters. It's just you need a framework to have metacognition and to start thinking about yourself. I think the common element behind them is metacognition, stopping and looking at who am I? How do I think? How do I respond in those situations? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And so those Myers-Briggs is just as good as anything else. So yeah, I think it's a right brain, left brain thing. If you just go on left brain, then like I say, academics would say, no, it's just a waste of time. It's not scientifically valid. It's da-da-da. But then why has it become so popular throughout the real world? And why has it been used so many times? And why does it resonate with so many people? I think a lot of it's because it gives us a framework to start working out. Mm. Who am I? Which tribe do I belong yeah. to? People like to be able to, I guess, associate with a certain whatever it is and say, hey, look, this is me and, and all this stuff makes sense. And some people it's horoscopes and yep. some people it's I'm a yellow person or yeah. I'm a whatever it is. And Yeah, I think the human brain has the ability to do that. I think you can, you don't need runes or any, you know, I think you can go and pick up a book off the shelf now and if you can use your right brain and be sort of metaphoric and interpretive and ask a question, open up the book at random and point to a sentence and that sentence will give you an answer. If Not in a left brain, very analytical way, but in a right brain way it will. So I think all of those things work because it's the human brain. It connects mm. to the bigger picture and stuff. Mm. So I think... Don't think they're the be-all and end-all, but I would embrace people to get to know thyself. And if that means doing personality tests and stuff, then go for it. Yeah, I mean, the other way you can talk to I think, is a metacognition. That's what yeah. you call it. So that's the ability to think about yourself. Yeah, or to think about how you think. You know, like the way I explain it to parents, a monkey's got cognition. He can think and problem solve. But a monkey can't think about how he thinks. That's metacognition. Okay. I can go, oh, I'm quite an auditory learner. I'm quite a visual learner. A monkey can't do that so cognition is thinking metacognition is thinking about thinking which right. is another way of saying knowing yourself are there any exercises tools strategies tips or anything that that maybe people that are listening could do you know i mean now you said the sort of science is a bit loose around it that could mm. sort of help or some, maybe some questions or something that might help stimulate the idea of metacognition for people of thinking about themselves or the, you know, like a blank sheet of paper terrifies people, you know, it's yeah. like people need, you know, here's some questions you could answer about yourself right, that are maybe yeah. beneficial. Is yeah, there, I think it's it's hard to give a roadmap for exactly that because it is that first maxim, know thyself, and everyone's got so quite an individual pathway. Mm. So there's no, I mean, I do an exercise with people to get them to start in a loose way. I say, right, people can do this while they're listening, is get a pen and paper. Then with that pen and paper, I'm going to get you to do a drawing. And don't worry, you don't need to be able to draw it. Stick figures and stuff. And actually, you're only going to have 60 seconds to draw it. So it's not a drawing competition. It's just get something down on paper. And they'll say, okay, you got. So when I say now, you'll have 60 seconds and you've got to put in these items in the picture that I've told you. You're not allowed to write down the items. So there's only going to be like five of them. Just remember them. And I'll tell you the five items, then go, go. And you've got 60 seconds to draw a picture with those five items in it, right? So the five items are a house, a mountain, a tree, a snake, and a fence. So you're like, right, so they do it. And so they draw this picture, they've only got 60 seconds, and then you take their pens off them. Now you can tell a lot about the person's subconscious because, you know, Jung talked about dream analysis and certain symbols always mean things, like the house always means the self. 
regardless of whether you're a Chinese person who's been dreaming or whether you're a German person who's dreaming. Jung's theory of the collective unconscious is that actually a house always represents a self. No matter what dream you're having, whatever the house is that you see in the dream is in some way a reflection of yourself and your self-esteem and all that sort of stuff. So if you go inside the house and you go up into the attic, you're going up into your higher self. If you go inside the house and you go down to the basement, you're going into your subconscious, but the house always represents a self. So that first thing is, how is the house on your picture? Because I gave you no details. Does the house take up most of the piece of picture because you're grandiose and think you're really important? Or is the house a tiny little speck in the far corner like it's an insignificant part of the whole? Where's your self-esteem at? Or you know, most people are in the middle and they've got a reasonably balanced self-esteem because it's a good size, it's not particularly small, it's not particularly large, it's just in the middle. But if it is particularly large or small, what does that tell you? I didn't tell you to put any windows in the house, so the people that put no windows in comparison to the people that had six windows with the little crosses through them and had quite details that's you know the windows on the house look like the eyes so you know just probably tells us how visual that person is where there's no windows at all a chimney we didn't say to put a chimney on but actually a chimney and a spiral of smoke coming out of it suggests a connection to a higher source did they just put in their own chimney straight away so you can analyze the house yeah, for ages yeah. there's no right and wrong answers it's just them going ah oh, learning about themselves and that resonating yeah. the tree represents the father so is your tree big overbearing, shadowing over the whole house and putting the whole house into a shadow? Or did you forget the tree? And, oh, whoops, I forgot that. Oh, that doesn't mean anything. I just forgot. No, it does mean something. It means your father's absence. You might have, you might have grew up in the same house with him, but to you he's absent because he wasn't even remembered to be put in the picture. He's, you know. Yeah, so you can tell lots about the, the tree and just how it is in the picture symbolically. The mountains then represent your mother. So have you got a great big mountain with sharp, craggly points on it? Or do you have big rolling, nurturing hills in the background? You know, great big rolling hills that take up the whole background of the picture suggest you had a good mum who surrounded you with love and nurturing. One not covering up the whole picture, standing beside itself in the back with jagged edges on the top suggests you had a very critical mother and that she wasn't a big all-encompassing loving force in your life you know you can just start to analyze the mountains and the size of them and the shape of them and um the fence represents your level of defenses how defensive you are did you just do a little picket fence did you draw the rest of the picture because this is what i did i worked out as a very defensive person when i first did this exercise because everything else in my picture was 2d except for the fence which become 3d to wrap right around the house <laughs> so it was um you know you analyze stuff like that oh the other one i didn't put in when i said there was six on we tell them to put a path in too you said the snake as well yeah yeah i was coming to the snake last but the other one was a path i didn't say yeah to put a path in the picture um because the path tells you your level of communication from the front door a nice windy, just one wind, suggests good communication. Straight down to the page, you're too blunt and just deliver things directly to people and often offend people. If you've got a big winding path, you're way too flowery in your language. Like, fucking know, just to get there, just cut to the chase. <laughs> like, um, yeah, communication. The snake is the interesting one because the snake represents your sexuality. So for typical sexuality, we would see the snake sitting inside the yard. If your snake's just sitting inside the yard, inside the fence, you're probably pretty vanilla. <laughs> like in your sexuality yeah. you're probably heterosexual you probably like the missionary position you're, um, if the snake's up the tree then your sexuality is very tied up with your father doesn't mean that your father was molesting you it just means your sexuality is very tied up with your father and, and it doesn't always mean that you're a gay man either but it does often represent a, a gay man will often have a snake up in the tree but just not always yeah, is your snake outside your fence 
So you have um, your sexual boundaries are quite loose and you will do things that cross boundaries and you've got quite a wild sexuality. You can just tell lots by yeah, where the snake yeah. is. The size of the snake. You know, is it a serpent that's the same size as the house? Which means you horny ass. <laughs> <laughs> or, or did it look actually like a worm So, and rather yeah. than a snake? So maybe yeah. you don't have a high degree of sexuality, yeah. Wow. That, I think, just having a picture like that, and it's hard for people to get past the, oh, no, it was just a coincidence I did that. If I did it in another 10 seconds, I would have done it differently. No, there is always meaning behind it. There's no such thing as coincidence. Your picture wasn't wrong. It's exactly the picture you were supposed to draw when you didn't have that information. But you can just, people start, to analyze themselves. That's interesting, I would also encourage like the Myers-Briggs thing yeah. and, um, because it gives you a consciousness to understand yourself. Yeah, um, I remember having loads of fun with someone in this um, a birthday book thing that um, you know just gives you the date that you were born on yep. and tells you all your characteristics because you were born on that particular day. You know, so scientifically, it'd be a complete load of shit, but we had masses of fun and some yeah, yeah. conversation and, and amazed at how accurate it was that we yep. went to our birthday. It was like, oh my God, that is like exactly me. I don't think we need to get into the argument whether it's real or not, just yeah. get into the idea of celebrating the discussion of who are you. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Probably not many people think about themselves much, you know, like everyone's yeah. so busy and so caught up and right, getting yep. here and going there that probably, yeah. you know, and now's probably a good time if people have got four weeks off to sit down and yeah, have a think about yourself a little bit. Because it's not a waste of time. I think that's the most productive time that you can use is thinking about yourself. This whole world around you is is a illusion that's created by you. So yeah. the higher the quality you are, the higher the quality that illusion will be. So I think you're going to the source when you work at yourself and not your problems, but you. Yeah. Well, mm. I think that you sort of, you may not have control of the world, but you've definitely got control of the lens that you look through it at, you know, yes. and you can, you can tint that different ways by, oh, so right. you know, doing work on it. And you know, there's yep. the idea of, a, you know, someone having rose tinted glasses, you know, it's like they always see the world that's wonderful and good. Yeah. And, I think that's a good skill to have. Not, not if it's stupid, yeah. That, you know, you're going to invite the bloody masked man with a gun into yeah. your house because you think he's probably going to be, you know, you can't yeah. be stupid about rose colour. But to me, I worked out early on, I think everybody's life is going to be 10% misery. Sorry to say it, but there is no way of living a life where you don't have misery. It doesn't matter if you're Kim Kardashian and bloody rich, you're going to experience heartbreak, you're going to experience death, you're going to experience loss, you're going to experience grief because you're a human being. Even if you're sheltered from it, 10% of your life is still going to be that. People, your Mum's mm. still going to die probably before you, your dad, you yeah. know. 10% of your life is going to be joyful even if you're a miserable cow, you know? <laughs> even if you're completely miserable and push it away, those people still seem to fall in love and get married. They still have children and experience the joy of that. They still have happiness in their heart even when they try to be miserable. So I think 10% of life misery, 10% of life's really happy you, that you don't have much choice over that. The 80% in the middle is a lot down to your perspective. And I think the rose tinted glasses is the best perspective you can take to try and view it positively is always going to be better. Your brain works better in the positive mode than it does in the negative mode. So yeah, I think some of it's set. You can't just be completely positive, but 80% yeah. of our life is actually determined by how we choose to see it. Yeah, interesting. Which is And which is all within most people's control as well. Yeah, and it's just habit. It's that three-month yeah. thing again. I think that's why we have a coronavirus and I'm straight to, oh, good, I can write a book, or oh, I'm going to be able to get fit, and, oh, God, I actually need a break because, you know, the little things have just got too hectic and, oh, good, my daughter's coming home again. I, You know, my kids left home a couple of years ago and I celebrated, yeah, I finally left the kids home, but actually it's a little bit sad too and it's lovely to have my baby back at home. My mind just went straight to listing off all the positives, even though... I know that 100% of my job is working with large crowds. So I've lost 100% of my income. I've had to lay off two staff members. I may have to lay off my only other remaining staff member. I could choose to be going, oh, but I think my brain's just been trained to go, 
might as well see the positive. This shit's going to happen anyway. Yeah. I might as well just frame it positively. And because those things really are positive, they really are things to get excited about. Yeah, totally. I think. You know, again, no research behind this, but I think we kind of have a, a, a natural negativity bias, you know, yeah. when it comes to things like this. And I think, yeah. you know, maybe that's trained in our evolution because, you know, our, our brain was originally designed that you know, things that scared us probably were going to kill us. Yes. And so we're very, very focused on negativity because in the past, negative things would kill us. And I always think You're about. So right, that's dead right, spot on. Is it? Yeah. Yep. So you, you think it like a, a bird or a fish, for example, like mm-hmm. a, a leaf swings in the wing and the bird is scared and it, it flutters yeah. away you know they yeah. they have a, a very strong negativity bias because that's how they survive because it could be a cat or it could be a um, a human or something trying yeah, to yeah, catch yeah, the bird yeah. um, but when we look at human beings nowadays you know the reality is is that most things 99.9% of things that we encounter in our day aren't going to kill us no. um, but we tend to exaggerate those negative things because our brain is wired that way and if you ask yeah. someone you know how was your day they may have had a fantastic day yeah. they may have had one bad thing happen Happen, yeah, and they will tint yes. their whole yeah. day by yeah. that one bad thing. Yeah, and yeah. it's interesting that that's sort of how we're designed. And I think the ability yes. to consciously be aware of that and realize that your brain is going to naturally Absolutely. dictate towards the the negative things yeah. and try and consciously push it the other way. And yeah. say, what was actually really good about my day? And I think a practice of gratitude's a really yes. a really powerful. Right. Um, I'm just thinking of all the neuroscience behind that because it's right. If I've got you hooked up to a brain scan and I say, "Oh, you look great today, mate." tiny little bit of neurological activity if then I say you look like shit masses of activity in the brain because now you're seeing me as a threat I've just said something negative to you so perhaps I'm hostile the survival stuff kicks in and so your brain gets way more of a kick and pays way more attention to that negative comment than it does to the positive one I know as a speaker if I hand out evaluation forms and I get 99 evaluation forms back telling me I'm a bloody genius and wonderful and they give me 10 out of 10 and I get one that just runs me down um, what is the one I'm thinking about all night? And I've got all this knowledge in my head and I know I shouldn't. And it's probably just that person's issues, but it is so hard to turn off that critical, yeah, that one person's critical comments are ringing in your ears yeah. and the 99 people that said really positive stuff, you're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, and it's. I think it's important for people to know that is a natural tendency of our brain. You have to um, you have to actively do actively things to undo consciously that. point it the other way, and it's yeah. the same with. Um, you know, with anything, you know, ask someone how the job interview was and they just ruminate on the one thing they could have done, the question they could have answered yes. better. Yeah, you know? it is. like yeah, And it's, school sort of encourages that in a way, but too, because critical thinking is seen as intelligence. Mm. So it is that critique. I was on that project last night, and I'm mm. sure I said some good stuff, but yeah, my mind went straight to, oh, I didn't say that. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't fast enough. Yeah. I went straight to... You know, and I don't always do that. Sometimes I'm happy, but yeah, it is. Um, yeah, you do straight away go to the critique because that's what you think is going to make you better next time. Yeah, and I think I mean I, I read this, um, so slightly more research in my opinion, but that our brain can't really determine the difference between a saber toothed tiger coming at us yep. and someone calling me ugly. You yeah, know, like the the, the stress response the same. is exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, it's just triggering the same mechanism. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that. You know, it's that's why it's so critical. You know, it's why it plays such a big part in our what we're thinking yeah. about. Yeah, the thing to counteract that though is your brain. So your brain's very clever like that. It's very stupid in other ways. Your brain doesn't know the difference between visualization and real life. 
because essentially real life is a visualization. What you're seeing in front of you right now is only actually 7% based on light hitting the pixels in your eyes. 93% of it is based on prediction. Your brain doesn't really have the capacity to keep checking that the roof's still there. Your brain learned a long time ago to predict that roofs don't disappear, so you're just assuming that the roof is there. You're not checking in to make sure I don't suddenly have two heads because your brain's learned to predict. So that's what I mean. It's 93% of what you're seeing is based on prediction. The light hitting the pixels in your eyes, the other 7% is to pick up novelty. So if you suddenly had two heads, I would notice it because that contradicts my prediction. If yeah. the roof disappeared, yeah. That's interesting. So visualization is a powerful thing. Yep. We know that affirmations can help as well. Yep. I think gratitude has a really powerful way. So I have a, a weekly gratitude practice where each week on a Monday morning before I, uh, after I've had bre- good gym breakfast, or normally after I drop my daughter for daycare, um, I'll just sit down. And sometimes I try and do it with my wife. She was around. We just write all the things that happened that were awesome in the last week. Okay, yeah. um, and it, I don't know. I don't know the research behind it. But for, for me, it just, even in a week, you can forget some of the good things, really good yes. things that happened last week. That's really. So really good things that you did or you know maybe it mm. might be about our daughter or it might be about anything but yep. you know like instantly you can think about the thing that you mucked up last week or yes. the, the comment that you got that on social media that was again negative against yep. you but you know but yeah it is what you attend to isn't it so that gratitude practice mm-hmm. is choosing for your brain to attend to the things that are going to make you feel good yeah um, because on automatic pilot it'll attend to the things that you should have done better next time yeah so i think yeah it makes complete sense that gratitude you said that you and your wife come along to my talk and then you compared notes afterwards and had completely different notes because you were both actually attending to different things within the talk it resonated different parts and you missed parts as you because you were just thinking about the last thing that i said and relating that to you and your brother or something so you didn't actually but that didn't resonate for your wife she was then fully listening when you were thinking about you and your brother so you your life is about what you attend to that's that is that lens that we have and by doing gratitude you're deciding to instead of gratitude being naturally a 10 to 20 percent part of your life you're pushing it up to 50 60 percent of your perspective so it's no coincidence at all a lot of the great minds and great thinkers and great spiritual leaders of the world have advocated exactly that as being the main practice for achieving that yeah gratitude 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 yeah yeah it's a a good practice i think that's definitely helped us um Mm. the visualization thing is also really cool i I don't have you heard of dr kerry spackman yep um so he wrote a book um called the winner's Winner's bible Bible. yeah i love that book and so i've got a winner's bible and um when he talked about visualization so he's big on visualization and having pictures in your winner's bible Mm -hmm. and um and one of the things he talks about that it's really powerful is, is not just to have a picture of i don't know a boat or a car or whatever it is you want have the picture the image that you would see if you were sitting inside your new boat or your car or your new house fundamental difference yeah yeah and he said the difference it has and which is interesting what you say you know your brain can't actually differentiate between the real world and a visualization Mm -hmm. is that you know like if you you know if it is a you know a certain boat that you want if you had a picture of the steering Mm. wheel in front of you and you could see the dials and the key and the you know that stuff's far more stimulating to your brain than just a picture of what it would look like yeah and it's not as magical as people think actually it makes kind of a lot of neurological sense when we just understand all that stuff that everything is a visualization yeah and so and your self-belief generates what happens in your world so if you start to really believe that you're the person because it's not that hard there are people that drive super yachts there are people that own super yachts you're not you're not imagining something that the universe can't achieve it's something that's entirely possible so why shouldn't it be you if the people who have achieved that are the ones who believed they could and visualized and saw themselves in it Yeah. yeah and I think that the 
I mean, I don't know this, but what I think is that once you start to convince your brain of something and you have like a, a belief that something's possible is that slowly it actually starts to adjust your behavior yep. and your behavior is actually what changes the results and so if yes. you, you know your thoughts influence your action can influence results and there's probably some other things yep. we can put in that scale but if you can change your thoughts yeah you know via things like visualization gratitude yep. meditation affirmations whatever it is you can start to influence your actions and yes. if your actions change yeah. then your results mm. change and you'll find those actions will change immediately your behavior's changing but it doesn't take a long time you don't have to work at it when you change those thoughts yeah. and natura- and it's all your sub behaviors that you're not even thinking about yes. too that um, actually all contribute to whether you're going towards that or not yes. it's not just the big obvious ones yes yeah yeah I think, you know, for example, if someone was, you know, when someone meets someone that they're like, they said, oh, you know, instantly knew that this is the one and they just knew that this was the right person for them. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, because you believed that, your actions probably changed subtly. You probably spent a bit more time asking questions about them and you probably did some more things that were more thoughtful and you probably yes. spent a bit more time trying to grow and nurture the relationship yeah. and therefore the behaviour changed and so the outcome changed. So it's maybe not necessarily that we have this idea of intuition, yeah. um, but that sort of affects the way that we then behave, which then affects the outcome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's all one big continuous cycle. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's just realising where we can jump in on that yes. cycle and have influence, not 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 be reactive and let it be happening to us. Yes. So we can jump in as active agents on yeah. that cycle with the stuff yes, you're talking yeah. about, the yeah. gratitude and stuff, and really up the game. Yeah, and it can go both ways. I think it's important to acknowledge. It can also go mm. down as well. It goes up. Someone who thinks yes. they're really bad at something then will behave in a way that produces bad results, and then they continue thinking they're bad at something, and so it's a continuous down yeah, the spiral, yeah. isn't it? Oh, that's so true. So true. Yeah. And I think if a depressed person is listening to this podcast, they might not be listening by now because I think, you know, that thing's a lot of shit because um, depressed people get um, that the negative thinking goes down to that. No, life's just actually like this. They're yeah. just being warm and fluffy. It's not like that. I can't just pretend that I'm great mm-hmm. grateful and it's all going to fucking fix that. You know, they've got such a negative mind frame that it perpetuates that reality. Yes. And then I thought, shut themselves up in their room and let their room get really messy and pigsty, which also perpetuates a, you don't look around at, at chaos and think, oh, I'm going to be happy. Yeah. It's not that your physical environment is the only thing, but it's one thing. They just start perpetuating all yeah. those behaviours that yeah. keep them depressed. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And so the power, I guess, in that is for people is that, you know, by changing small things consistently over an extended period of time, you can have significant changes. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Just the power of the mind and, your, you know, your perception of things. Yeah. I think, you know, be positive even if you don't believe it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. Hey, um, look, this podcast is is called the Road to Success, and mm-hmm. you know people are interested in in being better. You know, whether it's a better mum, a better dad, a better leader, a better manager, a, yep. a business owner. Is there anything that we've cu- maybe haven't covered already? And I say that because maybe I haven't mm-hmm. thought to ask the question. Yep, yep. Um, that maybe that you know that you that, that could help people become better human beings, better... I, I do, but then we get really airy-fairy because yeah. you get to the big universal truths. Yeah. Like um, my thing would be that everyone needs to understand that you are not a mistake. You are every single person here is here because they're supposed to be here. All of your faults are exactly the perfect faults that you need to learn the lessons that you need along the way. You are perfect. And I think everybody is perfect, faults and all. You've just got to find out how it's perfect. But starting from a place of thinking that you're not good enough and not worthy, you're never going to get there. So even if you don't believe it, just understand that you are perfect and you are worthy and your job is to find out how and to celebrate and embrace that. I have that thing in my head that there was like 10 million sperm and I won a race out of 10 million other sperm to um, get through. I got quite 
a spiritual worldview. I think we live in a really special time. You know, the universe, life could perpetuate all throughout the multiverse. My personal belief is that to be alive in this time, I think there was lots of competition throughout the universe to be alive at this time. So if you're alive in 2020 on planet Earth, probably means you're one of the most advanced souls in the universe because it was massive competition to get here. So the rest, your value underneath is priceless and is not questionable. It's just your psychology on top and how well you know how to access that and how, how much you respect yourself. And I mean, it sounds airy-fairy. My advice to people is love yourself. You are worthy. Like, yeah. I can't put it any simpler than that, really. You do. Everything starts from loving yourself. You have to, you know, I grew up in a really abusive childhood with a pedophile stepfather and a really once were warriors stuff and lots of negative messages about um, who I was and who I should be. And so I know it can be difficult to do that, but that is the best advice I could give people as to that um, no one else is going to love you if you don't. So you've got to, I had to learn with all the negative messages I was getting from my stepfather more just to still be, no, I love being Nathan, faults and all, you know. Um, I love that Dr. Seuss quote, today you are you, it's truer than true, there's no one alive who's youer than you. You know, your job is to be you, so love you. That's great advice. A couple of questions just as we finish up. What's the most common question you get asked? Most common question. When I, when I um, mm. once, you know, once you'd agreed to do this podcast with me, yeah. which I'm very appreciative of, you know, I, I told a few people and and they all started giving me questions to ask you about their right. kids. You know, okay. like, you know, like, my right. kid's doing this, can you ask? I said, no, I'm not going to ask that. But, you know, like, okay, you yeah. must get asked a lot of things. Is there... um, I get, get, you certainly notice the themes behind it. One of the most common questions I get asked is, have I stuffed up my kid? You know, in varying forms, but... Yeah, that's a common, common people are worried that, um, oh, I split up with my partner or there was a bit of domestic violence. <gasps> oh, have I wrecked my kid? Probably the most common question I get asked is that, really? Um, have I wrecked my kid? So it's then giving people positive messages of, no. I talk about risk and resilience, that one risk factor does not, you know, determine your outcomes. It's a balance between risk and resilience. Yeah. But yeah, that'd be the most common question. Um, I get lots, because I hear the question behind it. So the here I, I hear a lot, am I a bad mum? Mums are worried, which I think speaks a wonderful thing to that mother. It's ironic that the very mothers that are going to come to my talks and come up and be deeply concerned that they may have damaged their children, and are like, oh my God, have I been a bad mother? Have I damaged my child? They're some of the best mothers in the world because they're so concerned about it. The reality is abusive mothers don't give a fuck. They, yeah. oh, they'll be right. Oh, shit, you know, it's his own bloody fault. He's a little shit. You know, they, they blame the kid. They don't take on that. So just the people to be in front of me and asking, am I good enough mother, normally means they're a sweet, lovely, <laughs> really, really, really good mum. Like, and they, yeah. they could be half as good as they are and their kid's still going to be fine. Yeah. Just for them to be asking that question. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. What are you most proud of everything? You know, you've done a lot of stuff now. You know, you've, you've probably had a huge impact on a lot of people's and a lot of young people's <laughs> lives. Is there something that particularly stands out to you, you know, when you look back at the things you've done that really make you proud? I'm proud that I stood by babies when everybody in my life said men aren't supposed to work around babies, um, shouldn't be an early childhood teacher because you're in the top stream and that's a waste of money and everybody told me that I should get to stay away from nurturing jobs. There's no money in it, there's no career in it, um, your sexuality will be doubted. Um, I am proud that I sailed my boat I think, and I love the irony that now I earn way more than all my other teacher mates who didn't go into early childhood because, you know, I'm the exception to the rule. Yeah, I just, I am proud of the fact that I have remained advocating for the most vulnerable member of our society and I haven't followed, I don't think I've ever 
cashed in. I don't think I've ever been pulled away from my spiritual journey of being here to advocate for the most vulnerable members of society. And even when it looked like it was going to be shit pay and everyone told me not to do it, I kept doing it. That's what I'm most proud of. And it's worked out well. That's what I'm proud of. Mm. Yeah, I think if you follow what really ignites you, like, yeah, it's um, it's what you need to do. Uh, and I think everything else falls into place. You know, like, yeah, if people go into a career based solely on the financial rewards that that offers, mm. then it's probably not the recipe for a wonderful life. Yeah, I've had a big influence in the new curriculum, and that blows my mind away that the New Zealand's getting a brand new curriculum. I'm on one of the five or six theorists that they're building it around, and little old Nathan from Milton has got to get all of my stuff into the new curriculum and really change the future, help to change the future of education in New Zealand. That's mind-blowing. I just can't believe that I grew up to do that and I'm only halfway there. Yeah, so that stuff is meaningful, but I, I'm lucky in my job that I get people walking up to me and I remember people coming up and saying they come to our talk, they'd adopted a child from China, she'd gone feral, it had all gone really wrong, they come to my talk, realised they'd done it all completely backwards and just stopped doing that and completely did what I said to do and it completely turned it around. And so I have this father coming up to me and crying and telling me how... I saved his life and his wife's life and their children's life and they're all so close now and just how bad it was and they got so desperate and they they are so grateful. That is so humbling and rewarding and I just think, wow, how blessed am I to be able to have a job that I am able to do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, that's very cool. You should be very proud of all of that and all the work you do. I think, you know, for everyone that comes up to you, there's probably 10 that are thinking it that probably don't as well. So Yeah, yeah. Well done. Um, Cheers, if, buddy. If you could put something on a billboard or you wish something, you know, if, if you – whenever I find out someone has a background in psychology, I always ask, what do you wish everyone knew? You know, right, okay. And maybe we've covered some things so far. Yeah, but yeah, if yeah. you could put a billboard up there and you had, you know, a sentence and it was yeah. – the entire world was going to see it, yeah. what would you write on it? 99% of who you are was created in the first year of life. That's what I'd want to say. Um, great, yeah. I look at my own grown kids and I think of their personalities and stuff and it just exactly reflects what's going on in the first year. So, you know, to have different children, I had, um, you know, for one child, being quite corporate, in and out of childcare, running, being busy. We've always been good parents. I've never slipped, fallen into bad parenting, but busy. And so that child grew up with all of those benefits because it was a wonderful life, but with a bit of anxiety. Another one, there was a little bit of busyness, but mainly it was all cruisy and hippie-ish with little pockets of busyness. And so that child's grown up to be mainly cruisy and hippie-ish with little pockets of anxiety. And I had one child where just circumstances conspired and had my mother living with us and so and there was no work. And so I spent just the whole year of their first life just completely cruisy, no stress. And that person's grown up to be completely cruisy, no stress. I just see it in all these different things. I mean, the science would say it's lower than 99%, but my experience is that you set the sail in the first year of life. Yeah, I just think you've created that person. After that, you're just looking after them. Yeah. <laughs> and you can change it, but it takes more extreme yeah. things to change it. So, yeah, that's what I want them to know. Then they would value that first year a whole lot more and they would not try and be super person and think, oh, I can look after the baby and work as well because mm -hmm. your baby does pay a price for that. Um, your baby would be better off if you 100% didn't work. If you didn't have, you know, the one person was completely available to the child, not I'm going to be the child and when they go to bed, I'm going to get this done, which is seen as a good mum. And I don't want to criticise anybody, but no, I think a good mum is one that puts aside yep. having that life and devotes herself entirely or himself if it's dead yep. to that child in the first year of life.
Yeah. Yeah. I think the ability to do the best you can in the circumstances you have is probably, um, you yep. know, like everyone has different things and can offer different things. And yep. absolutely, we know what, what we all should be doing. And, and you've given some fantastic advice. But I, I think people, if people can do absolutely the best they can considering their circumstances, yep. you know, that's pretty much all you can yeah, ask yeah. for, isn't it? You don't want to guilt people out. You know, that stuff about having a parent at home in the first year of life. I didn't. I could only do that once. Yeah. Um, don't beat myself up about it. It's yeah. not, you know, you do the best of what you can do at yeah. the time. But that doesn't mean we should hide from the fact. Yes, yeah. And yeah. this is where I get controversial because I, I don't hide from the fact that, yeah, but it was still better if you could have. Yes. And that might make you feel guilty. Yeah. I don't care. Deal with it. That's yeah. your issue, not mine. Yeah. Um, the re- cold start reality is all of our kids would have been better off with a completely 100% devoted parent in the first year of life. It's thinking that you could do that and do what I did, getting work done. And I had my mum living there so I could go and get clients done while my baby was in bed because I didn't want her to know. I wasn't a full at-home parent. So it was like, she didn't know because she slept for two hours every afternoon and that's when I did my two clients. And so I thought I'd very successfully, but actually my level of, you know, freneticness was way higher than if she had gone to bed for two hours and I'd gone, oh, sweet, thank God, it's bloody exhausting attending and looking after a baby or Dale having a snooze on the couch. The mind space that I'm in would have been much healthier for her than like, right, get things done. So yeah. yeah, you can. I don't want people to feel guilty, yeah. but I don't want them to hide from it yes. either and yeah. go, "Oh well, it doesn't really matter." It does matter. It does matter. It's best to be at home and one hundred percent available in the first year. Yeah. No, uh, my wife knows I'm a, I'm a fan of your work, and and so every time I hinted about her going back to work, she, <laughs> <laughs> she my name got thrown in your yeah, face yeah, yeah, and yeah, you're slapped with that's it. That's not what Nathan says. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, totally. Hey. Um, Good on you, though, because that, I really think that's the best thing you could have done, you know, is having that awareness. I wish I had had more of that. Yeah, well, you know, it's only, you know, you have to take credit for that. I think that, you know, it's not until people like you start spreading the message that you are that people understand that. I think there are a lot of people that maybe could have been in a position to do that, whether it's yeah. financially or otherwise, but didn't do it because they didn't know it was important. No, they know that's right. And we, yeah, we have a society that values them going to work and stuff. I remember being, and I was a teenage parent, I remember being about 19, taking my first child to childcare and I remember my mother saying you can't put a six month old baby into childcare that's child abuse because in her generation that was it was just phenomenal to think you were going to leave this newborn baby so yeah I understand when I'm thinking at the time oh you're so old fashioned mum be looked after by trained teachers um, she'll be way brainier because yeah I didn't know then I was a young person if you don't know you can fall to those understandings so yes a lot of people just don't know to value it What's next? And you've talked about writing a book and things, you know, is there, mm-hmm. you seem to have got, you've got a pretty clear mission, you know, is, do you have a particular goal that you're aiming at or is it something that you're wanting to achieve or is it just to continue on with the mission you're on? There is on? something I want to achieve. I think life's a wee bit like surfing though. I don't believe in having a rock solid plan. I think you're already stuffed if you've got a really rock solid plan because life is not like that. You've got to have a responsive plan. So I think it's like surfing. I know where I'm going to get, but I've got to surf and catch which waves. I, I thought it was going to be a television show, but I oh know that sort of wave fell back. So, oh, maybe it's more about YouTube. And now with this crisis, that looks like it's falling back. Um, and now I'm going to write a book. I'm surfing those waves to find out how to get there. But my ultimate aim, and I have to choose something, because I'd like the foster care system for children in New Zealand to be completely rebooted. Currently, it's under a risk management framework, which means that as long as they stay alive, that's the only goal they have for foster children. And most of our prisons are filled up by foster children. 84% of the prison population is foster kids. We are are systematically abusing a generation of children through our foster care system. Even though we've got good intentions, and I'm not dissing foster parents and stuff, I'm just um, saying the system that we have now is archaic, and it's filling the prisons. It's turning them into once-a-warriors kids. 
kids and they're filling the prisons and we spend the rest of their life punishing them and telling them it's their fault for the fact that we as a society neglected and abused those foster kids and didn't look after them. There is no excuse for it. They're the most vulnerable members of our society. You know, if it wasn't just doing it out of empathy, do it out of the fact that you don't want someone doing a home invasion and holding a gun at your head in the middle of the night. If you don't want to live in that society, most of them are going to be foster kids. So fix the foster kids. So if you had a therapeutic system, you wouldn't be allowed to do um, most of the stuff that we do to kids now. We used to take them off their parents and then put them into like 12 different homes thinking as long as you're fed, you'll be all right. If you had a therapeutic framework, you wouldn't be allowed to do that because that's child abuse. No person's going to be normal. No one's going to go a frontal cortex when you get moved around that much. So my big lifetime aim is to somehow be in charge of that and to get to completely rewrite it from scratch. So I think I'm starting my PhD again. I started my PhD and then stopped because I had teenage kids and thought, no, no, this is ridiculous. I've just got to prioritise. So I prioritise the teenage kids. Um, but now they're 21 as the youngest. So I think I'll do my PhD because I started looking around that on an alternative um, framework because lots of them around the world that we could implement. And then somehow finding myself in a position where I can implement that, whether it's the government says, yes, we want to do that or... I don't know, children are a low priority, so I can't see governments. I mean, we do call these child poverty and things now, but no one's ever done anything about this very clear pattern of yeah. foster kids. It's been ignored. It's yeah. a good mission. Well, it's a big fight, dream. Fight. It's like, yeah, you should dream big. Yeah, yeah. And maybe if we can do that and on a New Zealand scale, and that can be a model to the rest of the world, that it will then lead to yeah. other significant changes for children. Because I just think if I'm going to be here for 100 years, I do think I might be here for 1,000 years because I think I might hit the... You know, if you understand all the ageing research and stuff, I could hit it that by, um, if I live to 90, I can probably hit the wave where gene therapy, I can live to 1,000. So I do seriously think I'm going to be about 1,000 before I die, not 80. But if you just assume, okay, you're only going to have about 100 years, how do you want to spend that 100 years? Then that's what I'd like to do. What's the most important thing in the world? It is people. That's a Māori saying. What's the most important thing in the world? It's people, it's people, it's people. Who are the most important people? People in the first thousand days of life because that's when they're actually open to be deciding the quality of the rest of their life. So to me, the most important people in the world are babies in the first thousand days. And who's the most vulnerable group out of all of them? And it's kids in foster care. So I think if we can go there, fix them, you're fixing the hard core of society. You're fixing the murderers, the home invaders, the people that are going to make us live in hell. You're fixing that before it becomes a problem. So that's the most influential, important thing. Yeah, that's great. Anything you want to leave people with before we finish up? Any... Advice. Deep conversation, uh, isn't it? Yeah, people love great, themselves I've, already, and yeah, everyone I mean, is worthy. Yeah, I mean, um, mm. you've given lots of fantastic sort of you know bits of advice. But you know, as we leave, is there a uh, maybe a quote, an idea, a book that you'd encourage people to read? Or? Okay, here I've got a quote that comes into my head. It's a song. It's a verse of a song. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> it's a verse are. of a song. Um, by J.D. Blackfoot called Crazy Horse. And there's a verse in there that I found really powerful as a young person. Fly away, let your mind go through its metamorphosis. Try and find a way to bring your sunny love back to the surface. In his dreams, a man will be awakened to the calling of a dream that lies within. You're just a child that has but to remember that in yourself, you just found your best friend. So it's about that relationship with that voice inside your head is supposed to be your best friend. You should only speak to yourself like you would to your best friend. Be a good friend to yourself. I think that 
goes yeah. a long, long way. I used to have a voice in my head that I worked out when you get some self-analysis was actually my critical stepfather. So the voice inside my head, not good enough, you won't be able yeah. to do that, no one likes you. And then getting to the point and that song helped me to realise I'm in charge of that voice. May not have realised that as a child, but I'm in charge of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just not going to let it abuse me anymore. I'm not going to let it say you're not good enough. I'm going to fake it till I make it and consciously, and it only took a very short time to starve that critical voice in my head because I stopped feeding it yeah. like anything else. You know, I've been feeding it the whole time. And when I realized, stopped feeding it, wouldn't give it any airspace, yeah. wouldn't even think those negative thoughts, quickly go and do something else, make a phone call. That only had to put in an effort in for like two weeks and that voice starved to death. Yeah. And then that allowed this other voice that felt a bit fake for a start going, but soon become quite real going, you've achieved everything else that you wanted to achieve, Nathan. You're not a bad person. You're a good person. If you really stick your mind to this, why shouldn't you be able to achieve it? You know, I started talking to myself yeah. like I was my best friend, not yeah. my bloody critical step-parent. Let's go. I, I heard this line that you should treat yourself like you're someone you're responsible for caring for. Yeah. And I think it's a really powerful way it to is. do it. And even if you talk about, like, it's funny, you could talk about, like, do you know dogs are six times more likely to finish a course of antibiotics than a human? It's right. Because, it's because the human being is responsible for the wow. dog. And so they're like, well, he's got to finish the course. So he's, yeah. you know, doesn't, the immunity doesn't yeah, muck up wow, his antibodies and stuff. And so, you know, like, Pretty you're cool. responsible for caring. But a human being will go, oh, shit, I've bloody left it at home and I'll, I'll just get it today. Yeah, and yeah. Oh, well, I've, I've missed one, so I'll just knock yeah. it off. And, and there's own, it's only me or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, me, you know, yeah. that, treat yourself like you're someone you're responsible for caring for. You know, it's, like, it's funny, you'll always ask someone, I use this question in my work, and I say, well, you know, like, do you have a dog? And they say, yes. And I say, well, you know, do you ever give your dog chocolate? And they say, oh, no, it's bad for it. And I say, well, like, it's fair for you. you it's not <laughs> yeah. great for you. And I'm not saying you shouldn't eat chocolate, of course, but you know, like, know you it's mean, a great though. mindset. You know, it's like if you were responsible yeah. for looking after yourself, is the way you're treating yourself right now conducive to that? Yeah. And it's a great question to ask. That is a great question yeah. to ask. Eh? You could do a whole podcast on just all those platitudes. My grandmother always used to say, and it resonated with me because I saw it on different levels as I got older. She would also always say, happiness isn't getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. Which is another way of saying gratitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's great mm-hmm. advice. Um, hey, Nathan, I can't thank you enough. I appreciate your time. I appreciate all the work Cheers, you're doing. Buddy. I know thank there's you. thousands and tens of thousands, and, and if not, you know, hundreds and millions even of people that are positively affected by the work you're doing. And you know, if you continue on that mission that you've talked about, I think that there's generations to come which will be positively affected. It. So, oh, kia ora, bro. Yeah, I hope hey, so. thank you for, for everything you do. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Um, carry Thanks on. Thanks for coming, with, mate. That's been a great conversation. Yeah, I've loved it. I've really enjoyed it. Um, if people are you know listening and want to follow what you're doing or get in touch or you know maybe come to one of your talks, how can yeah, they yeah. do that? Um, just follow me on Facebook, Nathan Wallace, or look at me on nathanwallace.com because there's a website there that's got all upcoming events. Not that there are any upcoming events for the next not four weeks, but this will live on the internet forever. So that'll be you know, the place to go. Out. And there's resources and stuff on there. But if they follow me on Facebook, that's where I tend to post everything. Like today, we're going to do some filming about what do you do at home with all the kids since we're going to be in lockdown. Yeah, I always put that stuff on the web page and on Facebook so either of them great and it's Wallace W-A-L-L-I-S I-S yep that's right yeah good point wonderful Nathan thank you so much mate take care all the best okay cheers buddy And there we go. Thank you so much for checking out another episode of the Road to Success podcast. And of course, thank you so much to Nathan for taking the time as well. I know he's a busy guy and look, after a conversation like that, it's easy to see why he's in such high demand. What an incredible insight into our brain, into our children's brain and how we develop and look, a real privilege to talk to. And again, I really appreciate him taking the time. 
If you enjoyed the episode or you took anything out of the episode that you think might be of value to someone else, if you could share it with them, it would mean the world to me. You can do that one of two ways. Simply tell them about the Road to Success podcast and get them to check it out either on iTunes or Spotify or whichever platform you are listening to it on now. There'll be a share button. Hit that and just send it to them digitally as well. Secondly, if you, an organisation or a business you're involved with might be interested in sponsoring the Road to Success podcast, then please reach out to me online at mattylovell.com or either via Facebook or Instagram. Until then, thanks once again for checking out the Road to Success podcast. Have a great day. See ya. Bye.